Hello, I'm Ravi Raman. Welcome to the Motivated Life Podcast. On today's episode, I bring you David Cadavy. David's someone who I've been following for over 10 years, well over 10 years. Back in the days when blogs were cool, I subscribed to his blog, cadavy.net, and used to read it regularly. I was fascinated by his various interests, his journey into self-publishing, which at the time was relatively new, his success in self-publishing, and also his thoughts on psychology, creativity, and lifestyle design. I was also fascinated by his decision to, several years ago, four or five years ago, work from Medellin, Colombia, and be in some ways a digital nomad, but actually just make his home a place that he enjoyed and find a way to make a living from there. David's a very transparent guy. If you read his blog, he shares his monthly income reports so you can understand how he makes a living and what that's like. And on this podcast, we explore a few things. We explore his life journey and the insights that led him to lead what was a promising potential career in Silicon Valley as a designer, uh, having both coding experience and design experience back in the aughts, the mid-2000s in Silicon Valley, he had a number of potential opportunities to join leading companies at the time. But he decided to take a path less traveled that to him just felt right. And for me, I'm always fascinated by what it is that leads people to follow a calling and take their lives in a direction that is not necessarily the linear or logical path, but is right for them. So we talk about that. We also talk about creativity. David's written several books. They've sold well, and they've been self-published. And one of his books, The Heart to Start, is all about how to be more creative and to bring one's art into the world. He also has a new book coming up called Mind Management, Not Time Management. It will be available, well, you could pre-order it now, as I have on Amazon, and it will be published just within a few weeks. So by the time many of you listen to this episode, you'll be able to get it or at least pre-order it on Amazon. So we explore creativity, time management, and what it means for anyone to bring their creativity into the world. Whether you are an independent creator, or if you're a middle manager in a tech company just looking to be more innovative, we discuss how to make that happen and why it matters that you make that happen. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Of course, it would mean a lot to me if you would share this episode with people in your network that you think would be benefited by it And it's always helpful to leave a review wherever you're listening to this episode. It's through your reviews that people are able to discover and find the various interviews and insights that I'm sharing. And with that, I bring you David Cadavy. David, thanks for joining me. Ravi, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. You know, it's not often I thank social media. But I'm going to thank social media. I'm going to thank Twitter right now because, you know, I've, I've been following your work for a long time. You know, I'm losing track of time now, but it, sometime in the mid-2000s, I stumbled upon Kadavi.net. The aughts. Yeah, the aughts. That's right. Wow. And am I saying your last name right? Kadavi? Kadavi? Kadavi. Yeah. Kadavi. 
good. So I, I, I stumbled upon your blog and I started reading your blog. And then you had this book designed for hacker, hackers. I wasn't a designer, but I worked in tech. So I got that and I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And then, then kept following some of your passive income stuff and then your move, which we'll get into. And so, but then I got back on Twitter recently and I, I realized perhaps the most important use of Twitter which is to actually make real connections. <laughs> and I started following some of your tweets and some of what you're putting out. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to bring David on and just explore some of the things that you're about that we'll get into creativity and more. So thank you, Twitter, for helping us actually connect. Yes, thank you, Twitter. I, Twitter is really wonderful if you use it the right way. Mm, yeah. You know, and your journey, maybe you can paint the arc for me because my memory sh- tells me you're, you're someone who started working in the Midwest, in the heartland, in a cubicle, found your way somehow into Silicon Valley, and then took a leap and moved to South America where you've been for a while. It's a pretty interesting journey. Why don't you start by just connecting the dots for us on how you got from point A to Z? Yeah. There's an interim in there even. At, um, so I did grow up in Nebraska, Omaha, and I never really felt like I fit in there. Um, and it's kind of hard to describe what that was like, uh, you know, pre-internet. Uh, you know, you can't even like go see an indie movie, really. Uh, I think it's probably you could live in Nebraska now and it would be fine. Like the, the world is so connected. But that was where I grew up. And I didn't really have good examples around me that uh, confirmed or affirmed the the ideas that I had in my head, or that I was very curious, and I just didn't really feel that that environment um, supported that necessarily. And so, after college, I did end up going and working in a great cubicle for a few years uh, at an architecture firm. And during that time, uh, I decided to start a blog. I was reading all these blogs. I was reading Seth Godin's blog. I was reading various web design blogs. And one day I finally said, yeah, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And I opened up blogger.com and I started a blog. You can still see the first post. It's terrible. It's a run-on paragraph. It is has a misspelling in it. And within roughly a year or so, that blog helped me land a job in Silicon Valley. And so I moved out to Silicon Valley, the Bay Area. I worked at startups for a couple of years. I spent a year working on my own startup. And about 2008, I decided to leave the Valley. Uh, I came to realize that uh, while I had learned a lot from the Valley about how to believe in my ideas, uh, get that confidence that I didn't really get uh, growing up in Nebraska and being somebody with strange interests. Um, while I realized that it had helped me with that, I also realized, well, I was paying really high rent for basically access to venture capital and access to talent. And these were two things I realized I didn't need at all. So I moved to Chicago uh, and I rented a two-bedroom apartment for the price that I was paying for uh, one bedroom in an apartment that I was sharing with a bunch of other people in San Francisco. And I really just felt like I had something to offer. I had some ideas in my head. I didn't know what they were, but I wanted to give myself the chance 
to cut out the noise and to explore what that was. And after about three years of that, I got an email from a publisher asking me if I'd like to write a book. And I had never... How does that happen? <laughs> well, mean, I had... Is this just a blog? Is this... Were, were you sort of hustling on the side to make connections and make it happen? Well, I had written some blog posts that were popular on the topic of design. Um, basically, I was trying to get... What I was trying to do was get a talk at South by Southwest. I wanted to go do a talk at South by Southwest. So I engineered this long blog post with a lot of detail in it to try to get votes for my panel and became number one on Hacker News, you know, this news aggregator website. And uh, I didn't get the South by Southwest panel, but then I got this email for the book deal. And then by getting that book deal, I did end up uh, doing a talk at South by Southwest. So yeah, I get this email uh, asking me if I'd like to write a book. And I've, you know, I've been blogging for six years at this point, off and on, sporadically. I've written a couple blog posts here and there. They're 2,000 words long or so, but I'm not a writer. Like I never, that was not a thing that I ever thought of myself as. I hate, specifically hated writing as a child. Uh, you know, growing up in school, I liked to draw. I was an artist. Uh, but I did decide to take on the challenge and write this book. And I did that. The book did very well top 20 on all of Amazon. Mm. And I started getting flown all over the world to speak. I spoke this in- This is Design for Hackers. Design, design for Hackers, yes. Mm. And I got flown all over the world to speak. I spoke in eight countries. And in that process, I ended up traveling to, to South America, to Latin America. And I liked the culture a lot. Um, I then just kept coming back during the winters. Like after the winter that I spent writing design for hackers, I never spent another winter in Chicago again. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually I decided, well, I want to do this again. I want, I liked this process of being curious about something, learning a lot about it, trying to teach somebody else about it through writing a book. I said, well, I want to do that again. I want to double down on this writing thing. How am I going to do that? Well, one thing I wanted to do was reduce my expenses. Another thing was I just happened to notice during these winter trips that I took to South America, I was looking at the work that I was doing during those trips. And I was like, this is my best writing. I don't know why, but let's go figure it out. So... I once again sold everything that I owned, which is what I did when I moved away from uh, Silicon Valley and uh, moved down here. And that was about five years ago. And so here I am sitting in, uh, in Medellin, Colombia, in an apartment with furniture that I own. <laughs> uh, I did spend four years in a, un in a furnished apartment, mm -hmm. you know, just to try to clear as many distractions as I could for my life. I've seen photos of your desk. I don't know if it's still as sparse as, it, as some of the photos you've shared, which is basically <laughs> a laptop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, like the, the most sparse desk you a, can imagine. It's a more complicated setup now. Yeah. And I actually have, you know, several different setups that I uh -huh. kind of switch between based upon the type of okay. writing or work or thinking that I want to do. And that's part of what I've been doing down here the last several years is really experimenting with, uh, 
with how to make creative work happen. Because one of the things I discovered writing that first book was that everything that I had learned about productivity up until that point, you know, I had been a productivity enthusiast. I was into getting things done. I was into time management. I was always talking with my colleagues about, oh, how am I going to get- You created a time management app, right? That was, uh, you created a app app around time management and calendaring, right? I mean, that, well, that, so you, you were not just a geek, productivity geek. I mean, you went a bit off the deep end. Well, what, what happened there was, uh, you know, after I, the smoke cleared from the process of writing that first book, six months, it was actually a really dark time in my life, like a winter in Chicago, locked in my apartment by myself with a tight deadline, you know, finish this book, hit these deadlines or, you know, give back the, the, the money that they sent and, um, you know, tell all your readers and friends and family that you failed basically. Uh, but once I finally got through that process, I started to look back on it and realized that I had kind of developed these ways of making creative work happen. A lot of time I was at the beginning, I was just banging my head against the wall 12 hours a day, trying to get this 15 minute window where suddenly uh, all great writing would, would come. And so I wrote a blog post called mind management, not time management, uh, basically about manage your creative energy instead of managing your time. And uh, there's a great behavioral scientist named Dan Ariely author of Predictably Irrational, has done a a lot of tremendous work in behavioral science. And he saw this blog post somehow. And he reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to uh, help with the design of this productivity app that he was working on called Timeful. And I said, well, I'm not moving back to Silicon Valley, but I can work with you remotely and basically arrange for me to be an advisor, a design advisor, work with the, with the design team, um, experiment with the app that they were building and experiment uh, with the intersection of that app and my mind management philosophy that I was working on. And so we worked on that. Um, and, and then uh, Google ended up buying that app, uh, Timeful. And so some of those features from Timeful are now in Google Calendar. So it's, uh, you know, a pretty cool thing that this stuff that I learned writing the book, writing this mind management, not time management blog post, yeah. uh, some elements of that are in Google Calendar now being used, used by, you know, millions, maybe hundreds of millions of, of people. I mean, who would have thought that the decision to start a blog and just start writing, I mean, would have, <laughs> I, I suppose that's just sort of part of the way the world works. It's very hard to connect the dots looking forward. Like, yeah, exactly. I was just yeah. going to say, like you said, <laughs> connecting the, the the dots, right? You can't you can't foresee that things are going to work out the way the way that they do. So I want to I want to actually wind it back a little bit before we talk about creativity and mind time management. I'm curious about that Silicon Valley experience because, you know, I spent my career in tech. Um, I left the corporate experience to go forge my own path. I work with lots of clients in transition who are considering making a move. I would imagine someone with design skills back in mid 2000s. 2008. Um, 2008. Okay. Yeah. So even if it was during the financial 
issues. I mean, there was... It was right before it. Oh, right before. Okay. I, I would imagine that you, you could have had opportunities at a number of companies. What was it What was it that gave you the insight that you wanted to do your own thing? And what was that like to make that choice? Because yeah. you're saying no to what everyone else was doing in the Bay Area. Exactly. I mean, it was... I had tremendous opportunity in front of me. Imagine design skills, uh, coding skills, startup experience. I'm in Silicon Valley. It's 2007, 2008. And I leave. (laughs) Crazy. Even as I was going through it, I'm thinking, this is nuts. Why am I doing this? Um, But you know, like there was at least one startup CEO who like literally begged me, please come work for us. I got contacted by a Facebook recruiter. There, you know, there was plenty of opportunities uh, right, right there for me, but I just wasn't interested in any of them. I had already been through, you know, working for one social startup, which was, you know, was a green social network. And then I tried to build my own uh startup was another social startup. And one of the things I was realizing was, Hey, this isn't a very good model. Uh, as far as like, it's not really a good way to make money doing this. Like mm. the things that we're trying to do are good. And that was one of the exciting things about being in Silicon Valley and arriving in 2005 was that was the revival. That was web 2.0. That was, Oh wow. Look, we can connect people using technology basically to have parties, you know, to tell all your friends which, which uh, bar or restaurant you're at right now so they can drop by and say hello. And that we were very optimistic about that, all of us. But after kind of being through that, hmm. one, trying to do it to try to have a, a good impact on the world, and second, trying to do it to try to have a good impact on the world, but also try to figure out how to make money doing it, I kind of came to the realization like, this isn't, this isn't going to work. And, you know, part of it along with it was, was also programming, cultural programming. You know, there was the cultural programming that I had driven into me living in Nebraska that, you know, you got to have a job and you want to have health insurance and you, you know, like a more conservative, fiscally conservative way of life. Uh, And I was rejecting that. And I went to, work in Silicon Valley. And then I came to realize that I was being programmed by Silicon Valley too. Hmm. Uh, this idea that, oh, you've got to raise VC money and then you've got to hire a bunch of staff and you've got to, you know, get them all in a room and move fast and break things and all, all, all that stuff. But, and like I said, it was great in that it helped me believe in my myself and, and believe in my ideas in ways that I never could have if I had stayed in Nebraska because it just, didn't have that influence. Um, but once I gained that confidence, I came to realize, well, the goal that I'm going for isn't actually the goal that I want. Mm. The goal that I'm, the goal that I want is I want to go into this curiosity and see what's there. And now that I had the confidence and now that I had some idea how to do something, how to make something out of nothing, then I just wanted to get out of the noise I just want to get out of the hype. I mean, this was the height of, this was before Silicon Valley became a bad, a bad word. 
Mm-hmm. Right? This is like, these are the days when Theranos was, you know, trying to be like Apple and, and work in the media right. to, to do this kind of Hollywoodish thing. This is before the scales fell off the eyes of the public. Right. I mean, what's, what I'm hearing in you is you had some clarity on wanting to move things in a different direction. And what I'm fascinated with is where's that clarity coming from? Were you inspired by a talk? Uh, I get the sense that from your roots mm. in Nebraska, you just, you just sensed, you felt, you saw where it was going and you wanted to follow your curiosity yeah. Well, I wasn't totally confident in it. I can't, I mean, you know, I, narrative fallacy, I can look back on it now and say I made the right decision, or maybe that's also reverse rationalization perhaps as, as well. Uh, at the time, it was just, I just fe- a gut feeling. Like I felt it in my bones that I wasn't be- going to be able to get what I wanted out of being in Silicon Valley. And now that you mentioned, yeah, you know, t- a talk, you probably know this, uh, is that I did sit and watch the Steve Jobs Stanford commencement address over and over again, you know, where he's talking about connecting the dots. He's talking about following your curiosity. He's talking about having the faith that it's all going to work out in the end. And, you know, I guess maybe that's the part of Steve Jobs, if I can use him as sort of a symbol of what caused things to go wrong in Silicon Valley in some ways. Um, that's the part that I think maybe a lot of people missed was this message of really dig deep into your strange, weird ideas, especially if it doesn't make any sense to you why you're doing it, especially if it's not clear where it's going to lead and follow that and see where it takes you. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that I felt in me that made me do this thing that, that all the while I was like, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Part of it also, I think, and maybe this is part of what makes it difficult for maybe some of your clients or, 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 or other people in Silicon Valley was, remember, I grew up in Nebraska. I statistically should be selling used cars or like mowing lawns or at best sitting in a gray cubicle at an insurance company, you know, doing some middle management job at best. So when I was in Silicon Valley and suddenly I was surrounded by these people who, you know, from the day they were born, they were going to go to an Ivy League university and their parents expect them to be doctors and lawyers or do investment banking. And they're shaming their family by working at startups, basically, you know, to be around those people who had maybe that kind of pressure. Like I didn't have Mm -hmm. that. I wasn't really supposed to be in Silicon Valley in the first place. It was kind of a chance thing. I wanted to get out of Nebraska, but I wanted to go to like Chicago or Minneapolis and like work at a design firm or an advertising firm or something. And somehow I ended up working at startups in Silicon Valley, which was a fantastic experience and wonderful. Right. But you didn't have the, what I'm hearing is you didn't have, you didn't have the pressure since day one that you were supposed to be a certain way. And you were able to navigate a more 
malleable yeah. path for yourself. And I don't, yeah, and I didn't have as much. I mean, certainly there was my family being like, what are you doing? When are you going to go get a job? Um, are they still asking you that? <laughs> no, no. Um, and, and the, you know, there was that, but, that, but I realized at that point I, I had recognized that the, the constructed reality of the collective consciousness in a place such as in anywhere, but I could at least see the matrix in, in Nebraska or like the parameters of that thinking and see that they had construct people had constructed their own reality about what was true and what was right. And that if I felt differently that then I should go with that because there were so many things where, you know, when I was in Nebraska, especially as a young professional, I remember my, my, my boss coming to my desk almost every day and asking me two questions. When are you going to get married? When are you going to buy a house? Why would he want that? <laughs> because then I would be more beholden. I would, it would be harder for me to get away. And I'm thinking I'm 23 years old and my friends around me are buying it. They're drinking the Kool-Aid. They're saying, Buying a house is the best investment you can make. This is 2003, 2002, 2004. Buying a house is the best investment you can make. In my head, I was saying to myself, that's ridiculous. I'm 23 years old. If I buy a house, if I ever want to move, I have to sell the house. The best investment I can make is in myself. Now, I wish I would have had the confidence to like write that on my blog at the time, you know, years before choose yourself by James Altucher. Um, but once I did get out of that matrix and did see, uh, did go to a place like Silicon Valley where people valued my ideas, where if I had a weird idea, people would be like, Oh yeah, well you have to actually watch your mouth. What you ideas you come up with because people will make you do it <laughs> or at least they would then. And so after seeing that, after seeing the way that the matrix, the cultural matrix, the, the water that we as fish all live in, after being outside of that enough, I got better, I think, at being able to separate um, reality from constructed reality. Or, I mean, I'm not, let's, I should be a little more modest than that. I mean, I'm sure that there's all sorts of things that I yeah. take as reality that aren't really reality, but you know what I mean, I think. I absolutely do. And, you know, in, in my work with leaders, uh, core conversation is how we're all living in a movie of the mind. Uh, we're living in a creation based on our psychology. And th there's incredible both peace of mind and actually potential that comes from having a new relationship where we're not just stuck in the structures of our mental story, but more connected with whatever is really going on, right? And, and so I absolutely understand what you're saying and what you're pointing to. And, and so from there, you were able to carve a path and you're in Medellin, Medellin Colombia, and you've written uh, a few books, Designed for Hackers, you've written The Heart to Start, Win the inner war and let your art shine. Now Great it's book. called Start Procrastinating. Uh, Stop Procrastinating. Start 
uh, creating. Always oh, give yourself it? permission to change things halfway oh, okay. through. Yeah. Okay, great, great, great. So you're adjusting the title. That's great. And self-published, right? Self-published, yeah. Okay. And you have a new booking, book coming out, Mind Management, Not Time Management. Yes. Right. So what I want to transition and just talk a little bit about is let's start with creativity because for me, it seems like, you know, just, just getting started is the hardest part, which is why your book is so interesting. It talks to a lot of uh, ways to get over that initial procrastination or starting point, but it does beg the question, why does it matter that people are creative? I mean, do people have creative genius? Is it even important I mean, are you writing this book for everyone? Do you think everyone should unleash their creative genius? Or do you think, uh, I mean, I'm curious what you think. Like, mm-hmm. does everyone have some potential waiting to be unleashed? I think that everybody does. I think that almost all of us have this feeling at some point, and maybe it's been pounded out of us by the time we're adults, that I have something to offer. There's something that I could contribute to the world that would be an expression of my curiosities, of my interests, of my passions, and that would have some use to other people. Uh, so I think that we all have that. Uh, now, is there now why? Why be creative? I mean, if you want to come up with like a more uh, logical reason, I would say that you know the, the coming of AI and automation. We've been living in this world. Uh, where humans are turned into interchangeable parts to do certain jobs and you can change out uh, this regional manager of of operations and then replace that person with a different regional manager of operations and they've got the same education and the world isn't that way or it's becoming less and less that way. If it can be done step-by-step, then there's not really much point in doing it because a computer can do it. So, you know, being productive or being useful in this world isn't about about like, oh, I can type faster. I can type 50,000 words Mm -hmm. to make a novel faster. It's like, well, can you come up with the great idea? And it doesn't really take any time to have that idea. And so I do think that we are transitioning into uh, an age where this is becoming more and more important for us to find our, what Naval Ravikant calls specific knowledge. Like this thing that you only you can do it. You're the best in the world, not at one thing, but at your combination of things. Um, I think that we're, we're entering that, that time right now and uh, we need to figure out how to make that transition. Mm. You know, even amongst you know, my peer group and people I'm working with, the conversation tends not to be, how can I be more productive? It tends to be, how can I innovate better? How can I help my team innovate better? How can I, how can I solve a problem that we haven't solved before? How can I think differently? So perhaps we're on the, maybe on the cusp of a new uh, wave of conversation about creativity and effectiveness versus let's just be more productive, which I know in the 90s and the 2000s, there's book after book after book. So um, I'm right there with you. I've never considered myself a creative, but here I am doing a podcast <laughs> and I have a blog. Um, so, so I'm with you. But So let's talk a bit about what, what it takes to have someone, if we assume that we've got creative genius inside for a second, 
Um, what does it take to unleash that? Now, I know this is a whole book, but um, what are some of the key things that you think someone listening who might be uh, running an engineering team or running a marketing team, what do you think would help them unleash more of their creative potential? Mm-hmm. I think probably the first thing is getting comfortable with uh, with there being kind of gray areas. Like I think that we're you know, living in a mechanical world, we're moving from a mechanical world to an automated world. That's something that uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan talks about in his, his book, Understanding Media. He, you know, it's from 50 years ago. It sounds like it's from the future. He talks about uh, civilization being mechanized and how automation makes civilization more organic. And so one of the things you have to be... Uh, comfortable with then in that process is things being not quite so binary. It's not, Oh, I can't write. I'm not a writer. Uh, I can't program. I'm not a programmer. Like it used to be, you're not these things unless you have secured a job doing these things. Instead, there's a spectrum (laughs) uh, that, that you are dabbling. You're doing a little bit of programming. You're doing a little bit of writing. And in that process, also, your projects aren't, it's not necessarily start, finish. It's not necessarily not done, done. There's areas in between there. And so when you give yourself permission to have a place where you explore your ideas and where you manage your ideas, and when you give yourself permission to do little tiny projects before you get to the big vision that you have, then you start to actually uh, make a little bit of progress. Now, where to find the ideas? Where, how do you be innovative? Um, you know, Can I ask you, before yeah. we go there, sure. I'm curious for you. So you're a writer. Yeah. I mean, I, I have this vision of, you know, you're toiling away at your little keyboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I recall you have some special device that you use to keep your mind focused, but you're toiling away at your keyboard. But my guess is you have... Um, some interests that have inspired you and informed your work, I'm guessing. I mean, what, in the same way my yoga and meditation practice and my love of technology have come together for my, to inform how I approach my work, mm-hmm. um, do you feel like there is, what are the other interests in your world that are informing your vision for how you're writing your work? Is there anything or is that not? I mean, it's, it's just limitless, really. I mean, I, everything is fascinating to me. Um, so, you know, I, I do, uh, Latin dance. I, uh, used to play golf a lot. Don't have, haven't been playing a lot lately. I used to love to lift weights and learn about, uh, fitness. Um, I read books on all sorts of different topics. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's really no limit to it. I guess it's really just, wanting to understand the world Hmm. and like you talk about meditation or yoga practice i i meditate regularly i'm you know trying to do an hour a day right now um and trying to separate uh my perception of reality from reality is 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 a big thing and so i think part of that process 
uh, is learning about behavior and learning about psychology. Uh, psychology, I guess, would be an, a thing that, mm. that really interests me. And not so much, you know, and it's, it's almost, it's kind of a selfish interest because I want to make it as a creative. I want to find my specific knowledge, my thing that I can do and share it with the world. And that's an ongoing process. I've obviously written some books and each one is hopefully a little better than the previous one. And some future ones will hopefully be better as well. Uh, but it, it, it's, an, it's an ongoing process uh, to do that. And, and so, um, yeah, that, that, that's... Uh, you seem to have an innate curiosity. I mean, yeah. I'm hearing you've got an interest in psychology, an interest in perception, and a curiosity mm-hmm. that's been with you. Yeah. What well, were your, let ahead. me, let me pick up. I, 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 I lost my train of thought earlier. Uh, and, and so I am trying to share this thing that I believe that I have with the world and hopefully some people will find it useful. Um, but I realize that in that process, you're like in a fun house full like a house of mirrors, right? There's all these distortions going on when you're trying to discover who you are and to share that with the world, there's all sorts of mental distortions. Now we're, we're all, we all experience different weird psychological quirks and biases and, and it's hard to see those things in normal everyday life. But when the stakes are that high, when the stakes are so high that it's like, I'm trying to figure out who I am and bring this into the world and make my avocation, my vocation, um, then the stakes are really high. Then it becomes, okay, I really want to know if I'm fooling myself. Like, I really want to know the ways that I'm lying to myself. I don't want to know the ways I'm lying to myself because somebody can tell me I'm wrong about my political views or whatever. No, I want to know the ways that I'm wrong so that I can uh, see myself as I really am. And to hopefully make this thing happen, uh, and so that's something that that does drive my work a lot. I think is trying to find some sense of the truth, trying to find uh, the ways that I am fooling myself, the ways that I'm wasting my resources without being aware of it. Uh, the ways, yeah, the, the, how can I be effective? How can I take my very limited resources and uh, focus them in a way that helps me figure out this thing that is very hard? Mm, right. Now, you've written, and, and I, I, you know, as I'm listening to you, I hear a lot there that would be relevant for a lot of people. How can they mm. see more objectively and clearly how can they focus their energy on something that's hard? Um, and we'll talk a little bit about maybe some ways to look at it. Um, one I want to just talk to you about is some of the things you've done. You've done a lot of experiments that you've blogged about and talked about that I think would be just interesting to get your perspective on why they're important and maybe what they might do for others. One you've written about um, why creatives need to live in extremistan, sort of cribbing on Nassim Taleb's extremistan versus mediocre stan. And you shared a bit about what it was like to live in extremistan. Can you just capture 
um, what you were trying to do with that experiment and why it matters that creatives live in extremistan? What is that and why does it matter? Yeah, this is something I've, I've come to realize as you try to navigate the world and you try to find information that's useful or advice that's useful for you to do the thing that you want to achieve is, is that as Taleb talks about in the black swan, there's two places there's mediocristan, uh, or maybe it's mediocristan. I don't know. And then extremistan. Now mediocristan is the, the, the world that we've constructed with our civilization Right. I mean, this is one thing that I, I'm, I'm keenly aware of, aware of. I'm an animal that has you know, evolved and lived, live in this world. And I'm surrounded by things that were made up by people before me um, that make my life really great. You know, there's like flush toilets and food that I can get. And, uh, you know, I have health insurance. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm making money, but if something bad happens with my health and then, then it's there to help with these sort of extreme events that happen, uh, in the course of, of living. And that's what civilization is, is let's smooth out the risk in everyday life to make things just go more smoothly. So there's kind of a safety net. Um, and in order to do that, there's got to be, you know, there can be some volatility in the way things, like obviously we have natural disasters and weather changes and things happen in the political world. And, and hopefully we can withstand those shocks. Um, and, and say, like, take a, a, a company like Starbucks. Go get a job at Starbucks serving coffee. They're going to pay you by the hour. How can they do that? That's actually kind of amazing that they can do that. They can say, here's a contract, go to work, and I'm going to pay you this much every hour. How can they do that? Because they have a bunch of data and they pretty much know what does coffee cost? What does it cost to run this location? How many customers are we going to have across all these, I don't know, millions of locations? And if we pay people this, this amount per hour, we'll, we'll make a profit and we won't go out of business and the whole thing won't just come uh, crumbling down like a, like a house of cards. That's actually pretty amazing. Now, if you're a creator, if you're trying to be innovative, uh, and this is something that you see a lot with uh, when people try to measure things in startup advice or business advice, it's like, well, what's your run rate? What's your, what is your monthly revenue? What is, you know, this, this idea of something that goes on and on and on in a steady way. And yeah, maybe there's some ways to do that with, with creative work, but as, as Taleb talks about the Turkey, uh, the black swan, the, the, you, you take a Turkey and you ask it, do you think that humans are good? Well, humans come and bring me food every single day. So humans are great. Um, and then Thanksgiving comes along and all of a sudden humans aren't so good. So I'm vegetarian, this, so I'm still good for the turkey. Sort of event. But, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but there's this event that comes along and, and suddenly everything changes. Now that can have negative consequences. It can have positive consequences as well, where you know I can sit and look at the conversion rate on my 
website for how many people who come to my website sign up for my email list. And maybe if I work really hard, I can increase that by 10%. Or I can try to write a a blog post that's based on a really new idea and maybe do some strategic things to kind of target it towards a certain uh, group of people or whatever. And all of a sudden, I get this huge traffic spike and then I get a book deal and then I'm speaking at South by Southwest and then I'm getting flown all around the world. Like it's these explosions that happen. That's how success really happens in innovation and creative work. It's not a, you know, are you, is this happening a little bit more than it was happening yesterday? It's, it's, it's this explosive event. And that's extremistan. That's the world of black swans, of these sort of one-time events that you can't uh, foresee and that we also have a tendency to reverse rationalize. So even when I tell you how I got like your blog deal, post, yeah, it's like a yeah, it's post. a it's a narrative fallacy. Like you can't actually um, you know, engineer a black swan. And and just as as Taleb has said, you know, this this coronavirus pandemic is not a black swan. Like it was it was an inevitability. It wasn't a what what, what the black swan is 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 like um, is like oh we we have a insurance for uh, the Twin Towers in case there's a fire. And what happens? Something completely different that nobody foresaw at all. And that wasn't in the contract for insurance or, mm. or whatever. The, these, these events that just kind of happen. Well, now, how do you make that happen then? If it is unpredictable, if, 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 it, if we tend to reverse rationalize these things and explain them away with the narrative fallacy in reverse... Well, then what can you do uh, to make extremist Dan uh, stuff happen? And I'll stop talking at the, mo- at the moment right now and, and, and let you chime in if you want. Well, it's, it sounds like you're, you're speaking to an element of what, what people colloquially, colloquially would say take risks, but it's different than that. It's that in some ways, um, mediocre stand is sort of risky because then you're mediocre. It's like the average um, if you want to have an opportunity for something to happen, then these things that might seem like fringe um, is actually a way to be quote unquote extreme, but but actually open yourself up to chance. Yeah. Um, so playing with risk, playing with chance and understanding uh, that creativity comes from that playing in that world, which is yeah. different than the, you know, say the Starbucks job or something like that. I'm glad you mentioned risk. And I do want to say also like mediocristan, it sounds derogatory, but uh, you know, it'd be nice to live in a society where people could be mediocre and get by. I think Um, this isn't what we're talking about. Well, I I like waking up and knowing I have a roof over my head and that my water. I mean, I I have mediocre aspects of my life (laughs) and I'm happy with things that government is supposed to do for us to, to help have safety nets and all that stuff. Like that's all, that's all good. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about becoming great, right? We're not talking about whether it's fair or not to have to become great. We're talking about becoming great. Like this is, this is what we want and risk. Uh, risk has risk and is risky are two different things. So if something is risky, crossing the street is risky. It's amazing how 
many cars come within feet or inches of us in our lifetime at speeds that could kill us without it happening. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's risky. The downside, the potential downside of crossing the street is enormous. It's everything. You could lose everything crossing the street. Has risk is, is different. How much, yes, is it, is it risky? Or does it have risk to start a blog? Yes, you risk and likely will um, have nothing to show for it. Actually, I, I can't say likely will. I, most people should start a, a blog probably. But you do risk investing a lot of time and energy and getting nothing out of it. You've risked something. Is it risky? Not really. There's not a lot of like horrible things that can happen because you started a blog or that are, you know, have much likelihood that they're going to happen. And so the, the way that Taleb talks about it again, uh, uh, and he doesn't talk about it necessarily in the, in the context of creative work, this is the way that I think about it, is the barbell strategy. Is if you imagine a barbell, one side of a barbell has uh, a weight, the other side has a weight, the middle is thin, that's the bar that you hold onto. So on one side, you've got your sure bets. You've got, for me, that's passive revenue. It's like every month I kind of have some money coming in that I don't really have to actively work to make happen. Through, book, some sa- people, through book sales and... Through uh, affiliate revenue, okay. through, through book sales as well, but especially affiliate revenue. I kind of have like a recurring revenue um, padding going. People can see my income reports to see what I'm talking about uh, of like every month, you know, I could just completely stop doing anything. And for a while there would still be money coming in. Um, you know, and other people have different strategies for this. And, uh, you know, somebody like, I think Anthony Trollop, uh, I can't remember where he might've worked at the bank or the post office, you know, lots of different writers have worked at the bank or the post office. And they've got that, that thing that sure bet. And then on the other side is, is the sort of black swan plays. These things that you can do that have unlimited upside, but very little downside, mm-hmm. asymmetric opportunities, right? And, and so like if you're investing, uh, one side of the barbell is, is the, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a financial Bitcoin. advisor, I'll say by the way. <laughs> one side of the barbell is, is you know, bonds or what, something safe. Uh, other side of the barbell is cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, um, it is uh, things, maybe, maybe an angel investment, uh, things, things like that. Now, uh, and I have said, I said this on Twitter, and I know that um, Nassim Taleb says that, you know, not to talk about black swans as like thinking of winning the lottery, because the lottery does have, you know, you know the odds. But I've thought, well, if I could automatically buy a lottery ticket every month or every week, that would be one side of the barbell possibly mm-hmm. uh, is that, yeah, it doesn't. So, so what it costs me a dollar a week, you know, at a certain level of income that doesn't matter, but there's some small chance that you, you'll have some huge upside thing. And then it's the barbell in the middle. And now I don't, again, like I say, I'm not a financial advisor, but I've heard some people say, well, the old tried and true index fund that people mm-hmm. are uh, think is so safe. Well, maybe it's not so safe because you can lose 30% in a year. Um, I guess they, they, they wanted to work out over time. But anyway, when it comes to creative work, then that is, yeah, you have some sort of secure uh, 
thing kind of making the making the bills paid and then you have this other side where you're just making these small bets making small bets that are kind of crazy and weird and Mm -hmm. you know they might have a huge upside or likely most of them nothing will happen Hmm. you know just in our last few minutes i uh, i want to bring in the fact that you've You've had a podcast, Love Your Work, for several years now. You've had several hundred episodes. Just if you were to capture, I know this could be hard to do, but if you were to capture the essence of what are a few things you've learned in interviewing hundreds of people? I mean, Seth Godin, you've had a number of folks on your podcast. That What have you learned through those interviews that's really impacted your your life and your work for the better? Uh I'll try to just be really specific about it and say that I've learned a lot from Seth Godin uh, personally from on, on those interviews I've had with him. I've had two interviews with Seth Godin. Um, and the first one is, is kind of a big breakthrough because that is a time when I have decided that I'm going to double down on episode 77 on Love Your Work. It's a time when I have decided I'm going to double down on writing. And that's a period of time where I'm still trying to go the traditional publishing route. My first book was traditional, traditionally published. Uh, I was changing genres. I was struggling to work the traditional publishing route on a, a new book in a different genre, a different topic. Um, and I kind of did jump through some of the hoops and trying to make that happen. I didn't go through the 40 rejections or whatever that some people go through. I, I got impatient much quicker than that. And I was talking to Seth on the podcast and, and kind of waffling about that. And he's saying, you know, what, 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 what what's the holdup? Um, you can't cede this authority to somebody else because they're not going to do a good job. If you want to be a good author or writer, then you're going to have to do the marketing for your book anyway. So why uh, give away, you know, 85% of your income and rights to a, uh, to a, a publishing house when you're going to have to do the marketing anyway. So what you should be doing is publishing and learning as you go and getting better and better and better at it. And I can definitely track that back to that conversation. I mean, this is not narrative fallacy. <laughs> I don't think uh, that that was what flipped the switch in me. You know, it wasn't too many weeks later that I finally did publish the heart to start. Uh, I guess it was a few months after that, uh, that I finally did publish the heart to start self published. And then actually once I started doing that, I then published some short reads. I basically went six years between publishing my first book and my second book. But once I published my second book, I published three books within six months. I mean, they were some, some of they were, a couple of them were short reads, but that really just opened the floodgates. And I started really learning uh, about uh, publishing. I learned, started really learning about books. And I started really learning that a lot of the ideas that we have about books about what a book is and what a book should be like and what a book launch should be like and you know who should be an author and who shouldn't and what does a bestseller mean and what does a bestseller not i started to 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 realize that a lot of these ideas that we have are 
actually quite old and they're left over from sort of economic mechanics that don't exist anymore in the world books. And so now I've just not even, I don't even attempt to traditionally publish uh, at this point anymore. So I've got this next book coming out, uh, Mind Management, Not Time Management. And it's the biggest project I've ever had. And I'm very excited to get it out there. And it's coming out in a month and I'm not going crazy because I don't have a publisher breathing down my neck and and trying to get me to kill myself with my launch or or anything like that. Um, And uh, I guess I didn't mention that my second conversation with Seth was was after the the Hard to Start had come out. Seth had uh, endorsed the book on his blog, which was wonderful. And, and that was when he was reminding me that, you know, you need to, uh, that, that nobody can predict what a bestseller, what's going to be a bestseller when it comes to books. If publishers knew what was going to be a bestseller, they would only publish the bestsellers. They, they wouldn't publish thousands of books um, to only have a few of them be winners. And so that it's always a surprise. It's idiosyncratic. And... And so you should do the weird thing that feels right for you. That was episode 177. Mm. And, and I think that really helped me, uh, that, re- that really helped me dig in uh, to this mind management, not time management book. You know, and I suppose that gives us a leg up against the AI machines. If things are less formulaic, if they are more black swan oriented, we've got a shot. You know, David, I... I, I exactly. I, I feel like we can have two or three more podcasts, perhaps in a future month, we'll have you back on to explore mind management, time management in more detail. Everybody check out The Heart to Start, which is now called, what's the new title? Well, it's called The Heart to Start, Stop Procrastinating, Start Creating. Got I it. I changed the subtitle. Gotcha. Because, because, you, because you can't, it's, it's not a binary world. You mm. can publish a book and you can later on decide, you know, I, I should have changed that part. And you change it. Gotcha. New book coming out shortly, Mind Management, Not Time Management. They can follow you on Kadavi.net and Twitter. Twitter at Kadavi. I'm on Instagram as well at Kadavi, but Twitter is my true love. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, David. Take care. Thank you.